Good morning. It's good to be uh, here worshiping with you and a chance to look at God's Word. It's thankful for a couple of weeks away for a vacation, uh, but it's good to be back here in Chicago and to uh, worshiping with you all this morning. And we're going to continue looking at the Gospel of Luke as we've been doing this summer. Uh, before I, we start that, though, I just want to mention uh, Brian prayed. We're glad that, the, that Will and Katie Lowry are here with us this morning, and um, they're going to stay after the service, a chance that you can check in with them. Uh, many of you know they were serving over in Birmingham, Birmingham England, uh, but because of visa issues, they can't go back to that work in the fall, and so they're exploring possibilities that God's opened in Poland, so we should pray for them. Also, really glad that Mark and Alicia Garibagli are here, and uh, I think they're somewhere around here back there. There they are, yeah. Uh, many of you know Mark and Alicia. They are mission partners of ours that serve at Tyndale Seminary in Amsterdam, and they are on furlough, um, and so we're, we're very thankful that you can join us for worship this morning. So I encourage you to, to find the, those families after the service the chance to check in with them and encourage them in their work. Well, as I said, we're, we're looking at the Gospel of, of Luke, chapters 15 through 18. We're going to finish this series up next week and move into a fall series. But during this section, we've been seeing that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And as I was looking at this passage and thinking about these chapters that we've been looking at over the summer, uh, an experience or a memory came to mind. Uh, one of my freshman roommates was a math major, and he was really good at math. Maybe that's obvious, but I mean really good. Like he took a test and he placed eighth in the world. Who knew there was tests like that, but uh, eighth in the world. And also he helped discover a theorem with his professor during his freshman year. So this guy was really good at math, and uh, one of the things that used to happen was I would try my best to figure out how to do my math homework, and he would, in a kind of you know, funny way, ask me why it was taking me so long, that what I was doing was so easy. So, you know, it was really encouraging. <laughs> but uh, that was kind of a joke that he and I had between us, that he would always wonder why my calculus was so hard for me. And I would explain that you know, math was a mystery in many ways to me. It's a mystery, but I, if I kept trying to do different problems, you know, eventually I would get some ideas about how I was supposed to do things on the test. And I, you can picture that. Maybe you have experience like that with math. If you keep trying, maybe you begin to not understand it fully, but you get an idea of what's before you. And maybe there's other things you can think of. If you have enough examples, enough practice, you begin to kind of put some things together. So why am I telling you this memory? Well, I'm telling you this because I was just thinking about Jesus and what we've seen these last few chapters. It's one of the things that stands out is that he is relentless. Jesus is relentless in his love to set before us example after example after example of what the kingdom looks like, what his path will be, and, and what it means to be part of his people. He's done that through story after story. And one thing, though, he's done is also through comparisons by setting up two different people and helping us see how one of them is not a picture of the kingdom, but the other one is. And maybe you can remember if you've been here on some of the Sundays this summer, you've seen this kind of contrast that Jesus has contrasted over and over again. He talked about an older son and a younger son. He talked about a rich man and a poor man named Lazarus. He talked about a Samaritan leper who had faith versus a healthy Jewish person who did not. He talked about a tax collector and a Pharisee. And in each of these cases, Jesus flips things around as a way to help us get our hearts around the kingdom. In each of these cases, the person that would normally be respected, the person who normally would be honored in society, the one who would normally would say, this person is good. God must be happy with this person. In each case, it was that good person who was outside the kingdom. And it was rather the sinner 
the outsider, the low or the poor, who became an example of what the kingdom looks like. Math is a mystery in many ways, but the kingdom of God is a mystery. Our hearts, part of our hearts, we long, we long for it, but we also have a hard time holding on to it. And Jesus and his relentless love for you and me is setting forth these pictures, these examples that we could get our head around, our hearts around what it means to follow him. And we'll see one again this morning, this contrast in our passage this morning between an infant and a rich ruler. An infant and a ruler. And in this case, the kingdom belongs to the infant. It does not belong to the rich one. And therefore, Jesus says, it's very hard for the strong and the rich to enter into his kingdom, but it's good news for the poor and the little ones. Because his kingdom is all about God acting in power for the low, acting in grace for the sinner. It is not about humans acting for themselves. Therefore, let us hear, Jesus says. So that's the contrast before us. Let's look at our passage from Luke 18, verse 15 through 30. You can follow in your order of worship, or you can follow in your Bible, or just listen. But here it is, Jesus inviting us again to consider what it means to be part of his people. Now they were bringing even infants to him, that's the crowds, they were bringing infants to him that Jesus might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time in the age to come eternal life. This is God's word given for our good. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and we do thank you, Lord, for your great love for us, that by your word not only do you present to us what is true, but that you are at work to bring us to see and to know who you are. We pray that your spirit would be with us, that we would let go of false hopes and false paths, that we would find our life and hope in you, Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning as we look at this passage, at these contrasts, there's kind of three sections, three things I want us to, to look at this morning. One is I want us to see this opening scene and talk about the nature of God's kingdom. The second, we'll look at the contrast between the little one and the ruler. And we'll end finally with the third part of just thinking about 
possibilities for ourselves, what this might mean for you and for me. So looking at this opening scene as Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, great crowds are gathering all the time to see him and to hear him. And on this occasion, Luke tells us that many are bringing their children. Luke writes, bringing even infants to Jesus that he might touch them and bless them. And the disciples see this and they rebuke those bringing children. The rebuke reminds us that we live in a world obsessed with power, obsessed with connection and influence. And in many cases, children in those categories are viewed as insignificant. One of the signs of those who are powerful, powerful person is his or her lack of time for those who are deemed unimportant or deemed lacking resources. Think about our setting here. Why should Jesus be taking time with persons, with little ones of such little influence or resources, especially when there is a rich ruler standing in the wings waiting with important questions? Of course he should talk to the ruler, not these little ones. But Jesus stops the disciples. He interrupts their thinking. He'll have none of their rebuke. And he says, rather, let the children come to me and do not hinder them. Maybe you're familiar with this passage. Maybe it's new to you. But for all of us, can we picture Jesus in this moment surrounded by parents, parents, grandparents, older siblings, aunts, uncles, holding their child's hand or carrying little children or infants in their arms? Jesus calls them. Jesus receives them and blesses them. And we're reminded in this moment that God's kingdom, all people have value. Even little ones, even those who do not have social resources or social connections or power or influence, that is irrelevant in God's kingdom for all have value and receive blessing before God. But there's even more than that. That's an important thing for us to hold, especially in the world that we live in, to hold that truth. But there's even more happening here. Do you see that Jesus says more than just a blessing? Jesus says that these infants, they are the very ones that you and I need to learn from. They are the example that we are to follow. The kingdom belongs to such as these little boys and girls. We can even think this morning of the infants among us or children in the nursery or classrooms down the hall. Jesus is saying the kingdom belongs to these little ones. And whoever does not receive the kingdom like a child cannot enter it. Let's dwell for a moment on that opening scene. Do you see how Luke describes the little ones? I mentioned earlier that there's a range of children being brought, but Luke especially stresses that there are infants being carried in arms to Jesus. Now, we know that babies are cute and a source of great joy, but we should be clear that Jesus is not offering a romantic or sentimental idea in this moment. Jesus had younger siblings. He lived life in a village. He heard crying of children. He knew their constant needs. Maybe he had to even attend to them. He saw their vulnerability. We can think especially in the ancient world, an ancient world that knew the deep pain of a high infant mortality rate. It was also an ancient world that was very aware that a little one at present, could not contribute to the work of the house or the work of the field. So in this context, when Jesus presents an infant as a symbol of the kingdom, as the way into his people, 
He's giving forth the image of need, dependence, vulnerability. Jesus blesses and presents an infant to stress this idea of helplessness, of utter dependence. Picture it, right? An infant cannot walk to Jesus. An infant cannot decide on his or her own, decide that this is what I'm going to do. They must be carried to him. Surely it wasn't the infant's idea to go be blessed, but rather they were brought by someone else. They come not with resources. They come with their need and their frailty. And in contrast to the infants, we meet a rich ruler. Right, right after this opening scene in which Jesus announces his kingdom and the nature of it, this rich man approaches Jesus and asks, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And this question he's asking, how can I live to be included in the kingdom of God? How can I live such that I'm, I'm not part of just the world, lost and disconnected from God, but how can I live in such a way that I'll be in union with God, and not with union of the world around me? Jesus replies, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Jesus lists some, and the man responds, all these I have kept from my youth. Having talked about the nature of the kingdom, do you see the contrast? Do you see the contrast between this man and the little ones that Jesus blessed? The ruler, can you picture him? Here is one who is so determined, so confident, well-dressed, well-spoken, exceedingly wealthy. He has kept the laws and he rules over others. The youth of the infant versus the maturity of this man, the passivity of the infant literally being carried compared to this ruler's aggressive, direct approach to Jesus. The infant's poverty versus the ruler's wealth. The infant's humble status versus the ruler's elevated rank and position. The infant's utter dependence versus the ruler having responsibility and oversight of others. But in this contrast that were set before us, Jesus announces that the kingdom belongs to the little one, not the rich ruler. And again, if we're familiar with this passage, we say, oh yeah, it's Chad, I know that. But we need to think about the significance of what Jesus is saying. Here is one who is very impressive, a person who's going to get the job when he shows up for the interview. Jesus says the kingdom does not belong to him. It belongs to the little one. The infant is blessed, but the ruler leaves sad. What does this comparison tell us? It tells us that we are going to be part of the kingdom of God. If we're going to live under the reign of God and as part of the people of Jesus through faith, then it's not like being the rich one who can climb over every obstacle. It's not like being the person who has strength in which you can make everything work out. No. It is like being a dependent one, one who is dependent upon his or her mother for milk. The kingdom belongs to, the way to enter it is through the little ones. And we do not enter into God's kingdom, into relationship with God by our strength or by our work, but by the blessing and power of the one who calls to us. We've talked about the nature of the kingdom and this contrast. I want us to dwell for a moment, though, on this contrast and look particularly at two things that set this ruler apart from the infant, two things that make it so that he is not entering the kingdom the way that Jesus tells them that he must. 
The first thing that we can see is that he is confident in his goodness. He's confident in his record. The second thing I want us to see is that he is secure in his many possessions. He is secure in his wealth. He's confident in his goodness. Do you see that he arrives and says that he has done all of the commandments? All these I have kept from my youth. And what does Jesus say to him? Welcome to my kingdom. You are qualified, right? And that's not what Jesus says. Jesus does not tell him, good job, keep going. But rather, there's a moment that happens here where Jesus does not invite him to, into a fullness of showing forth his record more and more, but rather invites him to empty himself. Rather, going down the same path the rich ruler has gone, Jesus invites him to a new way of emptying himself and turning in need and dependence. Recently in the news, I saw a story about a raccoon that got stuck in a Florida vending machine. Maybe you saw this. There's a nice picture of a little face, masked face looking out from the glass at the bottom. It was in a Florida high school, and somehow the raccoon got in and decided he would find some food to eat. We can maybe picture it, right? The raccoon sees what's before him and kind of finds a way in to get the snack that so, seems so great. But upon getting in, there's no way to get out. Well, good news, they took the vending machine out of the building and opened it so the raccoon could run away. I have no idea if he got the snack that he desired. The story didn't say if he had a chance to actually eat any food while trapped in the machine. I mentioned that if you can picture such a scene that this is similar to what the ruler is experiencing. And that might sound strange, right? But he sees before him things that seem like they'll work out. But the further he goes towards them, he becomes trapped in the path that's there. And what I mean is that he sees, look, I can keep these commandments. I can have a good moral record. I can do all the religious things that I'm supposed to do. And as he keeps grabbing for those things, he comes to Jesus almost saying, look, what's next? Tell me what I should do now. I'm walking the path, I'm showing you that I am competent, that I'm doing the things that I'm supposed to be doing. What's next for me? And as he walks that path, the path of the law, the scripture calls it, it's like reaching a hand into something that will trap you. For there's no way out of that path. There's no way in which that path will bring you fulfillment and full life. For we trust ourselves to our record, if we confide, have confidence that we are good, it will only lead either to pride or despair. It will only lead us to pride that we are better than others or to despair that we cannot be honest, that we cannot know how to handle these things before us. We cannot keep the commandments. And whether it's arrogance and pride or it's despair, both of them will disconnect us from God and from ourselves and from those around us. The pathway of trusting in my goodness is always a trap, always bondage. And that's why the, the kingdom is not that way. That is why the path to God and to come in to be part of his people is not based on on the fact that I can keep the commandments and do all the things I'm supposed to do. That's why when the Apostle Paul is talking about the kingdom of God and talks about Abraham, the first one who had faith before God, the kingdom is described as God justifying the ungodly. 
That's our faith. Not that you and I somehow lift ourselves up and show ourselves as redeemable, but that God in His delight and in His grace justifies, makes right, saves those who are ungodly. And the only way for us to enter that grace, enter that path, is to confess and acknowledge that we are ungodly, that we break God's commandments outwardly and inwardly. Well, the rich ruler cannot come into the kingdom because he is confident in his goodness. But we also see that he is in contrast to the, the, to the infant because he is secure in his many possessions. You see, Jesus sets before the ruler a commandment. He sets before the ruler a commandment that he knows the ruler will not keep. Jesus says, sell all that you have and give to the poor and follow me. I don't know how you feel about what Jesus is saying. Maybe in that moment it can feel unkind or even cruel that Jesus sets this command before the one who is so confident in himself. But Jesus is opening this man's heart He's helping him to see that he cannot keep the commandment. And more than that, that he has trusted his security, trusted who he is, and the fact that he's been able to gather much wealth to himself. And Jesus is telling him this commandment not to add one more good thing for him to do, but to free him. Think about this. Jesus is inviting him to let go of all his worldly possessions that he would find freedom. Freedom a new identity, a new way of being. Of course, there is sadness for any time we repent and turn away from one path, the old path to something new, there is a sorrow. But Jesus is saying that that sorrow is worth it to come find freedom from the things that you hold so tightly to. All people, you and me, all of us entrust ourselves to someone or something. All of us are seeking some form of security, some way to kind of put the pegs into the ground and hold things down. We all are doing that. In the New Testament, the, word, the Greek word that's used to describe that work of our heart is mammon, M-A-M-M-O-N, mammon. Often in the, the, test, the, the Bible, it's translated just money, but the, the Greek word actually means more than that. It means anything that you turn to, anything that you'd hold on to that gives you a sense of security that things are going to be okay. And the rich ruler has his security and his wealth. But you and I know that we can find that security in all sorts of places, certainly our wealth and our possessions, but it could also be our education, our jobs. It could be the relationships we have. It could be our goodness and our religious doctrines or religious activities. All these things that we could hold to that tell us that we are better and that we are Okay. And what Jesus is doing for this man, what Jesus' kindness that he's doing, is he's asking him to take off this security blanket. To take off this thing that he's been wearing that will tell him that he's okay. To let go of your money. To strip yourselves of these things, this protection. That you can be like a little child. He's saying once you do that, once you let go of your confidence and your goodness, once you let go of the security that you are rich, then you might come to me as one who has need, one who knows that you are weak, one who comes in dependence. Jesus seeks to free him. 
And for him to see and for us to see that the kingdom of God that Jesus proclaims, the the kingdom that he invites us to find rest in, is always from beginning to end entirely about the power of God working for broken humans. The power of God coming to bring grace to those who are sinners, to lift up those who have fallen. It is never at any point about humans accomplishing things for themselves or somehow putting God in debt. But if you're like me, Our hearts are so full of fear. So full of fear that a confident record of goodness or a large pile of money seems like all that we can hope that these things are necessary. Jesus sets the infant and the rich ruler before us that we might think about where we go for our sense of life and security. Where do we go to tell ourselves that we are okay? What mammon do we hold on to? See, Jesus has come to establish a new kingdom, and a part of doing that, he has to break the current way things are done in the old kingdom. The rich ruler sees this and hears this, and he leaves sad. And the rich ruler joins a list from previous passages that we've heard about those who were only interested in justifying themselves, those who were arrogant and their self-righteous, those who loved money or power, those who sought to justify themselves. And Jesus says, for all of those, anytime you're in those categories, it is impossible for you to enter the kingdom of God. For if you and I walk down the path of keeping the commandments, of being impressive through wealth or religious activity, It is impossible to enter God's rest and kingdom. The disciples, upon hearing this, are overwhelmed and worried about what that might mean for them. But Jesus says it's impossible with humans, but it's possible with God. That God invites us to something that we don't think is possible, a security and an identity that rests in his grace, his actions for us. As we wrap up, think about this for a moment, the idea of taking off old clothes and putting on something new. Jesus is inviting the rich ruler, inviting us as well to take off all the things that we present ourselves as strong, to take off being a good son or daughter or being a good spouse, take off owning the right home or the impressive house, having the right job, being the best Christian. Take those things and set them before Christ Reminding ourselves that these things do not make us a good person, do not make us worthy before God. And that Jesus says he will give us new clothes to wear, clothes of his grace, of his love, of his faithfulness, that tell us that no matter what it happens, no matter what people say, that we belong to him as a child of God. That we come as an infant dependent upon him. And the wonder happens when we take off our old clothes and put on these new ones, is that we're actually able to experiencing them no longer as a test about whether I'm good or not, but as things to enjoy or things to use to bless others. That even my family, my marriage, my house, my children, my possessions, my job, my gifts now become places in which I can bless others. No longer rivals, but gifts. And that's the vision of the church that Jesus ends with a vision of which people come acknowledging their need, saying that they're not better than others, and in that humility sharing their homes, 
sharing their resources, sharing their lives with one another. The church, those who confess their weakness and need, those who confess their hope is not in themselves, those who do not confess their own goodness, throughout the ages, that group who confesses Christ is called to be a place that shares and welcomes one another, not as a place to announce our confidence in our goodness, not to show forth how we are secure because of all the things we have, but to welcome people with hospitality, no matter who they are and how they fit in the status of the world. In that case, the church becomes the kingdom of God breaking forth on earth. This morning, we're invited to let go of the things that we hold so closely to. We're invited to set them down that we may come to Christ as one confessing only our dependence and our need, our need for his forgiveness, our need for his, his encouragement and hope. Let us come and find that in Christ this morning. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for who you are and thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you'd be with us as we come and we would meet you, meet you in new ways, ways that touch to the deep parts of who we are, that we find rest in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.